Praise God. The name of this message is called Christmas Prophecies. Christmas Prophecies. Last Sunday, I did a message on Jesus' birth, but more on his incarnation, how God became a man. And you remember, we looked at Esau and how he represented, he was uh, like a picture of Adam, before, after Adam, right? Adam was, you know, his name uh, is from the ground, Adama, from, which means ground. Adam, uh, he was from the ground, made from the ground. And the word, uh, the root, we looked into that, uh, meant, meant red, it could be translated red ground. Yet Esau was born all hairy, and his name Esau uh, is like, like means finished. Like he was like a finished man when he came out of the womb. He's all hairy, you know? And he was red. In fact, he got the nickname Edom, because, which is from Adama as well, which means red. He was a picture of Adam, right? Jesus came to reverse the curse. We lost our inheritance through the first Adam. Amen? The second Adam came. Jesus called the last Adam, the second Adam. And he partook of human flesh. That's a picture of Jacob. Remember? Jacob partook of Esau's flesh, so to speak. He stunk. He smelled like Esau. And Jacob's like, probably like, oh man, it's going to be tough. But man, I got to get the birthright. Which, by the way, Esau willingly gave up. And he got the birthright. Jesus became, like Jacob became Esau, Jesus became a man. Amen? Amen. The second Adam. And he went to the cross to pay for our sins, not to steal a birthright. But it says that the world rulers, the rulers of this world had known who he was. They would not have crucified the king of glory. And just as, which I, there was so much meat I left in the bone in that message, but just as Isaac, you know, didn't know what was going on, the world rulers didn't realize what they were doing ultimately. And they crucified the Lord of glory, but it was through that that the second Adam procured our eternal inheritance and now we are joint heirs with him. He has the inheritance, amen? amen. Really, really, really powerful picture. Then we expanded that more deeply because he left his home and went on a far journey to get a bride. Remember that? And he became a shepherd. Jesus is a shepherd, amen? He left his home to go get his bride. But it's interesting, he got two brides, that is Jacob, amen? amen. He got Rachel and Leah. But the first one who was his choice Laban tricked him, which by the way, there's a lot going on there because he was also, Jacob was human, right? God was just using him to draw a picture, but he was also using him because the, the lineage of Christ would go through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, amen? amen? And God had already chosen him to be the firstborn, even though he was the secondborn, even as though Jesus came after the first Adam, he becomes the firstborn. But he ends up marrying Leah because Laban tricks him. So as a human being, he's learning that he needs to get right and not be such a trickster because his name was usurper or supplanter or heel snatcher. And then he gets ripped off, so he thinks. And he gets Leah after seven years of work and he gets to realize it's the wrong bride. Laban, you ripped me off. Then he has to work seven more years to get Rachel, right? And even though God first chose Rachel or chose Israel, who's depicted, we know, in Isaiah 54 and other passages called Rachel, Israel. She can't have any babies. He had to work seven more years to get her. She can't have any babies. She's unfruitful. She's idolatrous. Rachel 
was unfruitful and idolatrous. She's a picture of Israel. Unfruitful, idolatrous, supposed to be a light to the Gentiles, right? Fails in her mission. God divorces her under Jeremiah chapter three, becomes a man, takes his bride to the church. Rachel's like, what? That's Leah. Leah is the second bride. Leah becomes incredibly fruitful, starts just popping babies out right and left, right? Just babies everywhere. The church is so fruitful by the grace of God. Hundreds of millions of people claiming to follow Jesus even now around the entire world, right? But was God done with Rachel after Leah was having all those babies and Rachel couldn't have any? She cried out to God. And after she cried out to God, God gave her children, amen? Well, the Bible uses Rachel as a picture of Israel in the, New Te- in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 54 and other passages, it talks about how she'll be incredibly fruitful. And Rachel cried out and she gave birth to children. Right? Israel will be reconverted. Amen? All Israel will be saved and she'll become incredibly fruitful because it's at that time that the Jews going back to the promised land will be in mass. It's already been fulfilled partially, but at the end of the tribulation, it'll get radically fulfilled as all Israel shall be saved. And they'll see him when they pierce and they'll cry out for him in repentance. But how many years did Jacob have to work for Rachel? Seven years. How long is the tribulation period that God uses called Jacob's trouble to bring Israel, Rachel, back to himself? Seven years. Come on, you guys. You can't make this stuff up, Okay. That's just mind-boggling to me. And the, the story of the Bible, the story of human history is just told throughout the Bible through so many pictures, through so many typologies. There's two different, basically two different types of prophecy. There's verbal prophecy, like Isaiah chapter 53, you know. We have several prophecies all about Christ's first coming, amen. Then there's what we call typical or typological prophecies where God uses personages, historical events, implements like the temple, the Ark of the Covenant, to point to Jesus. Amen? Mind-boggling. There's so many prophecies about Christ. And it's interesting because the name of this message is called Christmas Prophecies. And it's been, you know, guesstimated that there are over 300 prophecies of just Jesus' first coming in the Old Testament. That's what you hear over and over again. I think the number's off by quite a bit which I'll get to in a, in a little bit. But I love what God says, that he's the one true God and that the false gods that the nations follow, all these idols that can't hear and can't talk and are made out of wood and stone and so forth, they can't tell the end from the beginning. They can't establish history. But Isaiah 46.10, the Lord says, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. Wow. And we see that throughout scripture, you know? We see prophecies over and over again, like Daniel prophesying about the reign of Alexander the Great and how he will take over the entire Persian empire and how he'll die and that his empire will be split into four sections hundreds of years before it actually came to pass. That's mind-boggling. Or Jesus' prophecy, several of them he gave, but how Jerusalem would be sacked by the Romans. How Christians ought to flee at that time when they see it encircled by the Romans, which they did, by the way. 
and that not one stone would be standing in the temple and that, the, and that Jerusalem would be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of Gentiles would be fulfilled. Even to this day, the Temple Mount is run by Muslims and Gentiles. Even though Israel has regained the land because other prophecies in the Old Testament said that God would bring them back and Jesus said they'd be dispersed throughout all the earth. They were. They were. But in 1948, on May 14th, they were brought back into the land. Amen? Just like God, and that never happened with any other nation where they had ceased to be a country for years, for centuries, then it become a nation again from all these different people groups. So all these prophecies are mind-boggling. But there's these Christmas prophecies, these prophecies about Jesus' birth, the things surrounding his birth, his first coming, his ministry, which are mind-boggling to me. And if you go to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, just before Jesus ascends, he gives the Great Commission. And we read in verse 44, now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses, that's the first five books, Torah, in the law of Moses, and the prophets and the Psalms, which is Tanakh, you know, the rest of the scripture, all of the, the Old Testament must be fulfilled. And the law and the Psalms and the prophets must be fulfilled. In Hebrews chapter 10, we read of Jesus that he said, in the volume of the book, the volume of the Old Testament, it is written of me. So when this God of the Bible says, I tell the end from the beginning, he gives prophecies. We ought to pay attention and we ought to be encouraged, amen, because that way we don't live lives that are nihilistic, amen. amen. And when this God of the Bible gives us all these prophecies, it's been guesstimated that, and it's kind of a, a crazy number, but it's been guesstimated that there's so many prophecies that, you know, have been fulfilled that just eight prophecies that are taken of Jesus' life, uh, basically, for those to be fulfilled would be like less than 10 to the 21st power, which is basically an impossible number. Now, I don't know exactly how you could actually guesstimate the chances of that once you take these eight prophecies together, because you'd have to know all the, you know, <laughs> variations of every circumstance and everything else to really get the radar on that. But some prophecies, just one prophecy would be impossible to happen by chance sometimes, right? Like say, for instance, a, a virgin birth, right? <laughs> but they're talking about prophecies, even prophecies that you could, you could, you could say, hey, this, is historic, this historically happened. Just a handful of them would be impossible to take place by chance, you know? That a person being born in a certain place at a certain time and doing these certain things and all these things happening around them and so forth. It becomes utterly ridiculous after just half a dozen or more prophecies. But there's far more than eight that have been fulfilled in Jesus' first coming, which is absolutely mind-boggling, which shows you there's zero chance. And I want to take you through a few of these. Number one, the prophets declared, the first prophecy, is that there would be a voice that would cry out in the wilderness that would prepare the way of the Lord. Who was that? That's right. 700 years before it was fulfilled, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, we read, in 700 B.C., a voice calling a clear the way of the Lord. That's, by the way, the way of the Lord is all caps in your English Bibles. That's because it's the Tetragrammaton, YHWH, clear the way for who? Yahweh. Yahweh's coming. That's awesome, by the way. Uh, in the wilderness, 
cleared away the Lord Yahweh in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. And of course, John the Baptist was out there, the cousin of Jesus, crying out to the people to repent. And we could be 100% sure this was fulfilled in John the Baptist because we read in Matthew chapter 3, verse 1, and in verse 3, in those days John the Baptist came preaching, for this uh, is he who is spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Number two, a second prophecy about John the Baptist. There's prophecies more than just one about John the Baptist. Malachi, totally different book, chapter 3, verse 1. Four, not 700 B.C., but 430 years before Christ. 430 B.C. or so. Quote, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. By the way, you have the messenger preparing the way for the messenger so John the Baptist is the messenger, right? But Jesus is the messenger of the new covenant. He says he's the messenger of the covenant that goes to the temple. He brought the new covenant. And it's remarkable. Well, how do we know this about Jesus? Well, we read in Matthew chapter 11, verse 7, uh, that Jesus said, quote, uh, Je- uh, says, quote, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, for this is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare uh, your way before you. So it's talking about Jesus and John the Baptist there. So that's two prophecies about John the Baptist. Oh, there's a third in the Old Testament. And these are prophecies that relate, of course, to Christ's birth and Christ's person and who he is. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Again, 430 B.C. before Christ. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Wow. Well, wait a minute. The Bible doesn't teach reincarnation. What does it mean that he'll send Elijah? The Bible says, point a man wants to die, but after this judgment, Hebrews 9, 27. Well, let's think about that in a, for a moment, but he's going to send Elijah to prepare the way of the Lord. And that's in Malachi where it talks about the messenger coming to prepare the way of the Lord. Same person, John the Baptist, as we read about in Isaiah. But it's interesting because Jesus said when he was being asked about John the Baptist, He said, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. Now it's interesting. He says he's the Elijah who's to come. But John the Baptist asked point blank, are you Elijah? And he says, no. And some people think, oh, there's a contradiction there. Well, there's not really a contradiction at all there. Because Luke chapter 1 verse 17 sheds a lot of light on what's going on here. There it's written of John the Baptist, quote, he will go, also go before him in the spirit. Now listen to this, of John the Baptist regarding his birth. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. So John the Baptist came in the what? Spirit and power of Elijah. He wasn't literally reincarnated, but he came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. If you know Elijah's ministry, he was calling people away from idolatry to repent and turn to the one true God. That's what John the Baptist did. He was a voice crying in the wilderness. He was a voice that stood against King Ahab. Amen? It was being, his life was threatened because he stood against the wicked king. Sound familiar? John the Baptist lost his head because he stood against Herod, right? Herod Antipas. 
So it's really remarkable. He came in the spirit and the power of Elijah, very, meaning, meaning the same kind of deal was going on again. Now, number four, you're familiar with this one. Christ would be born, the Messiah would be born of a virgin, amen? Be born of a virgin. The prophecy in Isaiah 7, 4, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, the virgin, in the Hebrew it's Alma, right? Which means young lady, young woman, which is often used typically of virgins, although not exclusively. But keep in mind, I point out to you in the past, many would think, many of the Jews understood that it was speaking of a virgin because it would be a sign. Young women have children all the time. How would that be a sign unless she was a virgin? And, and almas were typically virgins, but not always. But guess what? The LXX or the Septuagint, which was a Greek translation that many Jews put together. Say some tradition says 70 Jews. We don't know exactly how many it was. The Greek translation of the Old Testament that was around long before Jesus and the apostles were alive. Translated the word Alma from Hebrew into Parthion, which was a word exclusively used of virgins. So they understood that, many of the Jews, that, speaking of a virgin. And in the Old Testament that Jesus and the apostles and the Jews were using in the first century, it read that a vir Old Testament Greek version, a Parthion, a virgin. And it's interesting because that was fulfilled. The angel Gabriel, right? What did he tell? What did he say? Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken of by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin, Parthion, in the New Testament it's Parthion as well, exclusively used for virgins, shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. So she, he was born of a virgin. Number five, we just read, his name would be called what? Emmanuel. That's from Isaiah 7:14. He'd be born of a virgin, but his name will be called Emmanuel. Now Jesus is called by many names, but Emmanuel is definitely one of them, amen? When you say Emmanuel, you say God is with us. What do we speak of when we speak of Jesus? What do you hear over and over again in this fellowship? That Jesus is God, and Jesus is God, and he is what? He's with us, amen? We talk about it constantly. In fact, his, his name has been, he's been called God, not just millions, but hundreds of millions, trillions of times. Since he's been born, Jesus is God. That's one of the cardinal doctrines of our Christian faith. In fact, we read in Isaiah 9, 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government, this is another prophecy, shall be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, amen? We've already studied these prophecies a couple weeks ago, so we won't go into all those titles, but he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, amen? That's fulfilled all over the earth right now. We recognize his deity. We recognize Jesus' divinity, amen? amen? We sing, O Emmanuel, amen? We call him Emmanuel, amen? Number six, Christ would be born in Bethlehem, the little tiny town of Bethlehem, insignificant among the towns of Israel in many people's minds. The prophecies in Micah 5.2 in the Old Testament in the minor prophet Micah. And when they, uh, sometimes I like calling these guys minor prophets. Like there's major prophets and the minor prophets. The reason that major prophets are called major prophets is because their books just happen to be a lot bigger, okay? But when you look at the minor prophets, they pack just as much of a punch, sometimes more. Micah 5.2, but as for you, Bethlehem, 
Bethlehem was this little town five miles outside of Jerusalem. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Wow. We don't speak of you or me being born and people don't say, yeah, so-and-so's goings forth, he's come from all eternity. Because you're talking about someone really special. We're talking about Jesus here. And it's quite amazing because this prophecy was fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. We read in Matthew chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled that the Magi had seen the star and that pointed to the fact that the Messiah was born. And he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him, gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. So, hey, chief priests, leaders among the religious Jews, where's the Messiah to be born? They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea. They knew it. For this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler. It's going to be a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Now, this is really amazing prophecy to me. Because where was Jesus' hometown? Or where did he grow up? Nazareth, right? In the region of Galilee. That's a long way from Bethlehem. In fact, that's 70 miles from Bethlehem as the crow flies. And you say, well, that's just, you know, hour and a half drive or so. Well, they didn't have cars back then, okay? And by the way, as the crow flies at 70 miles, arduous roads, not 70 miles straight. It's been guesstimated that maybe about 90 mile trip. And if you made a trip about, you know, 17 to 20 miles a day, you could get there in five days walk. But there's a problem. You have to go through Samaria, which they probably didn't go through Samaria. That was even rough in Jesus' day, amen? who was born, but then years later, his disciples had a hard time in Samaria. It was very dangerous. You probably wouldn't take your, prof, your, prof, your, your pregnant wife through Samaria. Bandits left and right at times. They hated the Jews. Jews hated them. Plus, your wife is just about nine months pregnant. Think that might slow down your trip a little bit? For the guys like, oh, no big deal. You haven't been nine months pregnant, right? Okay. And by the way, we don't believe men can have babies here, okay? We, we're, we're, we're sensible. We understand basic science and biology. So it's quite a, kind of interesting because we're not talking five days. We're talking seven days to two weeks. We don't know exactly. God knows exactly. That's a long trip. But what in the world's going on? How would you, the last thing you would do is say, hey, let's go have your baby in our, in our you know, because they were both from the line of David, right? David was born in Bethlehem. Well, let's, 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 let's go to Bethlehem to have her baby. You think Mary said, oh, that sounds great. God forced Joseph's hand, so to speak. Not that Joseph wouldn't have complied, but God orchestrated history divinely by just because he's sovereign, amen, by making sure that would happen. 
And it's interesting because he orchestrated this prophecy through the census that was taken for tax purposes that you had to go back to your original uh, area. Now we read in Luke chapter 2, verse 1. Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census uh, was to be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Wow, that's just amazing. Born in Bethlehem, origins from eternity, you know, from everlasting, had no beginning, becomes the ultimate ruler of Israel. That's several prophecies, by the way, you know, but we just count that as one, okay? Number seven, God would use a star to point the way to Christ. Actually, God would make Christ the star, amen? The prophecy in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, Balaam, you know, a prophet who went astray from the right way in 2 Peter chapter 2, but had made bona fide, beautiful prophecies about the Messiah before, uh, well, we read this in Numbers 24, 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob, and a scepter shall rise from Israel, and shall crush through the forehead of Moab, and tear down all the sons of Sheth. Wow. That's a long time, by the way. That's almost 1,500 years before Christ. <laughs> That's a blow of mind, you know? Oh, well, we read, by the way, in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For he saw his, we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, it's interesting because I, have, I believe we have good reason to understand why the Magi, who were magicians, who were pagans from the East, would latch onto a prophecy like this one in Numbers. And I, I believe this based on another prophecy that's given, which we'll talk about later. Where did these guys just come from? Well, these guys looked at the stars. They read the stars. They weren't astronomers, maybe to a degree, but they were astrologers, right? They believed the stars foretold the future. And God gave them a change-up because reading the stars is forbidden in Scripture. And God said, you know what? You guys are looking in the wrong place. I'm going to show you a star. And the Greek word they're used for star doesn't have to refer to a literal star. They see this bright light. And it's not a normal, like, star. It's moving because it says they follow it and it says that it hovered over Jerusalem. I'm sorry, over Bethlehem. I believe that could have been. Remember how the Lord guided the Israelites with fire? Remember that at night? I could have, it could have been very, the very presence, the kabod, the very presence of God's glory guiding them. And they're like, what, where does this come from? But guess what? They knew there were prophecies about a coming king. Where would that have come from? 
Why would they be looking at the book of Genesis? Why would they be looking at numbers? Why would they be looking at Jewish scriptures? For a very good reason, which we'll talk about a little bit later. By the way, in Revelation 22, 16, Jesus said, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I'm the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Amen. Amen. Number eight, that kings, leaders, would kiss the sun. Psalm chapter two, verses 10 through 12 says, therefore, you kings, be wise. This is in the Old Testament. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord God with fear, or serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss the sun. Wow. Or he will be angry and your way will lead you to destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. The NASB translation says, do homage to the sun. That's interesting in the Old Testament, huh? Do homage to the sun. In the book of Proverbs, it says, speaks of the Lord. It says, and do you know who his son is? Kind of a cryptic little question prophecy. Who's his son? Well, God would reveal him through progressive revelation. The New Living Translation says, submit to God's royal son in Psalm 2. Well, who was this? What did the Magi do? By the way, the Magi in Babylon, who couldn't interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream, you remember them, they represented the king. Magi often would represent their kings and do tribute in a, and, and, and acts of worship on his behalf. We read this in the scripture in Matthew chapter 2, verse 11. On coming to the house, they saw the child with Mother Mary, with his mother Mary. And they bowed down and what? Worshiped him, amen? They worshiped him, which is mind-boggling. And by the way, kings have since this time bowed down to Jesus. Armenia was considered the first Christian nation where the king said, our country, myself and our country, we're gonna serve Jesus, you know? We're gonna worship him, you know? Kings have bowed down to him in fulfillment of this scripture. And the Armenians lost millions, probably over two million people uh, with the genocide under the Muslim rule. And I remember President Obama, when he was running for president, he would say, he said that he would seek to persuade Turkey, a Muslim nation, to apologize and acknowledge their murder, of mass murder of Armenian Christians. He became president and he went to Turkey. He never said a word about it. The press asked him, how come you haven't sought to persuade them to acknowledge the Holocaust that they did against, the Muslims did against Armenia? And he said, because I speak words of unity, not division. I'm sorry, you're a lying hypocrite at that point because you did that to get elected to get the Armenian vote as much as you could. But he was anything from, from a Christian, right? So are leaders that do not follow him, obviously, and there's leaders that will follow him. But one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, amen, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Nine, there would be a presentation of gifts to him 
in Psalm chapter 72, verses 10 and 11, it says, may the kings of Tarshish and of distant shores bring tribute to him. May the kings of Sheba and, and Seba present him gifts. May all the kings bow down to him and all the nations serve him. And what's amazing is, and that will ultimately be fulfilled, but even to this day, nations and kings around the world have made tribute and built cathedrals and things of that nature as gifts to Jesus all over the world. Mind-boggling. And of course, the Magi gave him, we read in Matthew chapter 2, verse 11, on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That's a whole other Christmas message. You know, the gifts, right? That's crazy, the gifts that he offered. They offered him, right? So amazing. Number 10, he would be worshiped by shepherds. In Psalm 72, 9, it says, may the desert tribes bow down before him. These were the nomads, the nomadic tribes that were shepherds, you know. May the shepherds uh, and his enemies lick the dust. Well, we read in Luke chapter 2, verse 12, and in 15 and 17, this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby, the angels say to the shepherds, wrapped in cloths, in cloths lying in a manger. When the angels had left them and, become, uh, and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem. Because the shepherds were outside of Bethlehem because they were herding the sheep, right? Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what they had been told them about this child. Wow. It's ultimate. Jesus is the ultimate good shepherd, amen? Steve did a really neat little thing on, uh, at the Christmas party we had, Christmas celebration on the shepherds and so forth. And it's just interesting. Jesus is the good shepherd, amen? He leads us by the living waters. He feeds his sheep the bread of life. He gives them the water of life, Amen. He protects us and guides us from the evil one. Number 11, there would be, a great, there'd be great sorrow after his birth and many children would be killed. We read in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15, a voice heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping. Rachel, isn't that interesting? Rachel, it's a picture of Israel, weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because her children are no more. Wow. So what, and this prophecy, by the way, is mentioned in Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. When Herod re realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill the boys in Bethlehem and the, in the vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. We also see Moses, remember? He's a picture of Christ becomes a shepherd, delivers his people from Pharaoh, amen? Just, he came from the right hand of Pharaoh, so to speak, and condescended and, 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 and identified as a servant with his people and delivered them, amen? amen? Jesus left the right hand of the Father and delivered his people, but even as Moses, and they killed many children trying to kill Moses, remember, that's a pro prophecy again, a typological prophecy, but I'm gonna keep that under this more verbal prophecy in Jeremiah 31, 15. But they're all over the place. Number 12, Jesus would be anointed by the Holy Spirit. 
Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2 says of Jesus, when he'd be born, then a shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from its roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. That's Old Testament. The Spirit of God's going to rest on the Messiah. He's going to be a branch from David, right? Acts 10, 38. And you know what Jesus did, right? Through the gospel accounts, was anointed by the power of the Holy Spirit from on high. And Acts 10, 38, Peter sums up some of his ministry and says, you know of Jesus of Nazareth when he's preaching, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power and how he went about doing good. He was anointed by who? The Holy Spirit and power. He went out doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. And we read in Isaiah chapter 61, verse one, the spirit of so the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me. Amen? The Holy Spirit would be upon him. And it's interesting because we read this in Scripture and we read in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus says, and by the way, let me give you, I'm trying not to give you too much background because I want to cover so many of these verses, but I'm going to stop and give you some background here and there because it's just, you can stop and just look at two or three of these prophecies. That's why Sunday we kind of just focused on, on Esau and Jacob and so forth, but I want to, now I want to do more of a shotgun blast with a bunch of spiritual pellets, so to speak. We, can't, don't have to, we can know for sure that this book is divinely inspired by God, amen? That God's the author of this book. And it's amazing when you think about it. But Jesus, after he was tempted by the devil, tested for, in the wilderness for 40 days, was, came, emerged back victorious, amen? amen? And then in Luke chapter 4, he begins his ministry. He goes into the synagogue. And all these Jews are there. And he goes up and he opens the book of Isaiah. And he reads this. Isaiah, this is in Luke 4.18, the fulfillment of the prophecy I just mentioned. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recover your sight to the blind to set the oppressed free. It says he found Isaiah. Then he read that. And he closed the book. And he said, this is fulfilled today in your hearing. And he went and sat down. Then he started his ministry, repent. Started healing people left and right, casting demons out of people. Pretty amazing, amen? amen. We, got a, we have a wonderful Savior. And by the way, number 13, he would preach the good news. Number 12 was that he'll be anointed by the Holy Spirit. But you notice in that prophecy, he would preach the good news, amen? Preach the good news to the poor. And we read in Luke chapter four, verse 43, but he said, I must, that is Jesus said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. So he goes forth preaching the good news. We talk about the good news, the gospel. The world's used to hearing bad news. When they turn on the news, it's almost always bad news. And we're the, we're the ones in the world that are the salt light of the world. We have the good news, Amen. The Greek word is, I love the Greek word, it's beautiful, euangelion. What a precious, beautiful, good, what a beautiful word. The euangelion, the good news. We talk about gospel music, it's good news music. The world hears the word gospel, and I think the word gospel is great. But I think we should be calling it the good news more, because that's what it means. Gospel means good news. Amen. We have the best news, we have the greatest news, amen, amen. that God became a man and died in our place so we could be saved and have eternal life. Number 14, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1b and 2. We read more about the good news, but this is another thing, and this is why I separate this from the, just the good news, because it says, uh, later on, he shall make it glorious. 
by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. What in the world's going on there? The context, if you look at that passage there in Isaiah chapter 9 and chapter 8, it talks about how Israel was in rebellion to God and God allowed the, the northern kingdom to be destroyed by the Assyrians. And even though they were destroyed by the Assyrians and led into captivity, that even though they went through all this ugliness, that guess what? They'd be the first ones to see the light of the gospel. They'd be the first regions that the gospel would be preached in. Because in chapter 9, we read, but later on he shall make it glorious, that region that was devastated by the Assyrians 150 years or so before the Babylonians came in and took out Judah. By the way of the sea, on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, far from Jerusalem, right? And if you go on our Israel trip next time we go, which we're hoping not this next year, but the year after to go to Israel again, Pray about making that trip. It's amazing. But you're, we, we spend time in Galilee uh, with Ted and Linda. And hello, Ted and Linda, if you guys are listening right now. They consider this their fellowship, and they, they get into the Word with us. Uh, it's so beautiful there. And we've stayed there uh, with, with them a number of times and other places as well. But just huge, not retreat center, but just a wonderful place for ministry where you're overlooking the Sea of Galilee. It's like being over Lake Tahoe, but better because that's the sea that Jesus walked on. And it's so precious, so beautiful. But that's where Jesus grew up. And that's where Jesus did so much of his ministry. That's where so much of his ministry was headquartered, in Galilee, just as the prophet said would happen. That he wouldn't just preach the good news, but guess what? God would use his Messiah to preach to those who were considered left out because a lot of Gentiles lived in the Galilee area as well. And he was not forgetting his people because that's where the northern kingdoms had lived for centuries. Amen? So that's number 14. Verse 2 says of that same prophecy, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Does that sound familiar? That's quoted in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And in Matthew chapter 4, verses 13 through 16, it quotes this passage that I just mentioned to you as being fulfilled through Jesus' ministry. Are you with me tonight? Pretty amazing, man. Tell me I'm not the only one that gets excited about all these prophecies. Amen. Uh, number 15, Jesus is both the root and the shoot. He's both the root and the shoot of, of David. Revelation twenty two sixteen. Jesus says, I'm the root and the offspring of David. Now it's interesting because he's the root, okay, and he's the offspring. We could turn this into two prophecies, but we'll just look at it as one. He's the root because in Hebrews 1, it says, well, we, really, we already looked at it. Matthew chapter 5, I'm sorry, uh, Malachi chapter 5, verse 2. He'd be born in Bethlehem. His goings forth would be from where? from everlasting, amen. In Hebrews chapter one, it says, to which of his, to the angels he never said, thou art my son. And then God calls Jesus God and says, you created everything, amen. amen. And the righteous scepter, he talks about his authority, his power. David comes from, Jesus is the root of King David. King David came from him, yet he's also what? A shoot from King David because he descends from him physically because God becomes a man. He's both David's son, called the son of David. Amen? Amen. But he's also David's Lord. Amen? Amen? Now that may seem like a riddle, but it's not hard to understand. He's the root and he's the shoot. 
David came from him because he created David, amen? Created all of us. But also God became a man that comes through David's lineage. In fact, we read in Matthew 1.1, the very first verse of the Gospel of Matthew, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In Luke chapter 1, verse 68, the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. There it is again. Now, this is puzzling, but it's not when you think it through. In fact, the Pharisees were, trying to, were tripping out on him because he is a descendant of David, he's a son of David, but also he says, before Abraham was, what? I am. And they're trying to get a grasp of, wait, how is the Messiah, you know, divine? They picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus gave a solution to the riddle. Listen to what Jesus said. I love this. I think this is uh, really important. And by the way, before I give you Jesus' solution to the riddle, Jeremiah 23, verse 5 and 6 Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise up to David a branch of righteousness. And a little bit later it says, now this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Jesus is our righteousness, amen. amen. But how did Jesus solve this riddle? Listen to this. <laughs> he actually gives them a little, a, a little riddle to try to solve themselves. And in the answer to what the riddle he gives, Jesus gives the religious leaders is the answer. He says, what do you think about the Christ, Jesus says to them? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord, David says, the Lord said to my Lord. It's two different lords. Jesus says, what, is, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said, the son of David. He said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord? saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And nobody was able to answer him a word, nor was that day, nor on that day did anyone dare question him anymore. So he's saying he's the son of David because he was born through David, but he's also David's Lord. He's the root and the shoot of David. We're just going to count that as one prophecy, even though it technically could be two. Number 16, David would have a descendant that would establish his throne forever. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 16 and 17, your house and your kingdom, God says to David, shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and all this vision. So Nathan spoke to David. And to this day, Jesus has more followers on earth than any other king. Amen? Amen. Number 16, Zechari Zechariah 9, 9. He would enter Jerusalem as a king riding on a donkey. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, a foal of a donkey. And on Jesus' triumphal entry, you can read in the Gospels, a week before he's crucified, he rides into Jerusalem. Remember the palm leaves or are, are, branches are laid down and he rides in and they're heralding him as the Messiah. Why did he do that? Well, he was showing who he was. But he also knew that the jealousy of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders, the rulers would put him to death as he proclaimed his kingship. And it 
helped fulfill what he came to do in his first coming, which was to die for our sins. Number 18, Christ's birth would come before the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. This one's huge. Like if you're talking to a Jewish person who says, well, I don't believe Jesus is the Messiah because when the Messiah comes, he's going to take over the planet and, and Israel's going to rule the world. And well, that's, the Bible talks about two different comings of the Messiah. In fact, many of the Jewish rabbis, long before Jesus came, talked about two messiahs because they saw these, these promises that he would rule the earth. Then they saw these other promises that he would suffer. So they tried to understand it. So they said, oh, there's two messiahs. There must be two messiahs. So very popular interpretation by ancient Judaism prior to Christ's coming was there'd be two messiahs. Remember their names? Messiah ben Joseph would be the suffering messiah. Like Joseph suffered and was rejected by his brothers. And Messiah ben David, son of David, he'll be the ruling messiah. So there's gonna be two messiahs. Well, guess what? They were partially right, not two messiahs, but one messiah with two comings. One time he would suffer, amen, and the second time he would reign at his second coming. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28 says, he appeared to us the first time in reference to our sin as our Savior, right, to take away our sins, but a second time in reference to our salvation. That'll be our final salvation when we're caught up to meet him in the air and we receive our resurrected bodies. Wow. Well, guess what? We are talking to a Jew and they're saying, well, I believe the Messiah is still to come. You could say, uh-uh, uh-uh, that's not going to work. What do you mean? Well, the Bible says that he would have to come. He would come before your temple was destroyed. Before Herod's temple was destroyed. That's in the Old Testament. You can show him in the book of Daniel. Uh, chapter 9 says this. It says the Messiah, in verse uh, around 27, the anointed one, the Messiah, the anointed one will be killed appearing to have accomplished nothing. Isn't that interesting? He'd appear to accomplish nothing. As a ruler, and, and I'm sorry, and a ruler will arise whose armies will destroy the city and the temple and the end will come with a flood and there will be war and, and, and misery is our decreed from that time to the very end. So guess what? The Messiah is gonna come, but he's gonna be cut off. He's gonna be destroyed. And then, guess what? The city and the temple will be destroyed. Jesus was crucified. They, they debate the exact date, 33 or so, right? But it was in 70 AD. 66, the Romans came in. 70 AD, under Titus' power, the Romans destroyed the temple. As Jesus prophesied, not one stone would be standing on the other. And the Jews were dispersed. So the Messiah would have to come, have to come and be cut off. That wasn't such an exciting prophecy because they wanted him to come as king and kick the rear ends of the Romans, kick them out of Jerusalem, kick them out of Israel. They didn't want a suffering servant. So they ignored these types of prophecies. They wanted him to come and be victorious. But they didn't realize their greatest battle was not the king of Rome. Their greatest battle was against who? Satan, the powers of darkness, their own sinful natures, just like all of ours. And that's what Jesus came to do, amen? To save us from the powers of darkness, satanic forces, the penalty of death, our own sin that condemns us, the wrath of God that we deserve, amen? amen. And give us deliverance from the power of our own flesh. This is amazing. And by the way, that happened in 70 AD. It's a matter of history. So you can show the Jews, this is remarkable. Right here in the book of Daniel, it says the Messiah will be cut off right? That means you have to be alive to be cut off, right? Before the temple would be destroyed. So if Jesus wasn't the Messiah, then nobody's the Messiah. Do you understand what I'm saying? 
powerful prophecy, but he is the Messiah. He's fulfilled all these prophecies and many, many more. Number 19. Isaiah chapter 53, one through three, it says that he'd be rejected by his own people who would think that God was against him. And that's what the Jews deceived themselves into believing. We read in Isaiah 53, verse one, who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. It goes on to say, we thought that he was stricken of God. Well, Jesus came and was rejected by the Jewish leaders, was he not? And by the nation as a whole, crucify him, crucify him. Number 20, he would be betrayed by a friend. Psalm 41.9, yea, my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. And of course, we all know the apostle that committed apostasy, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus. Number 21, he wouldn't just be betrayed by a friend, but it would be by a friend who broke bread with him. Same prophecy. We read in John chapter 13, verse 18 and 19, and verse 26, Jesus says, I do not speak to all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that scripture may be fulfilled that he who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I'm telling you before it comes to pass so that when it does occur, you will believe that I am. What did the God of the Old Testament say? How did he say he pr pr proves that he's the one true God, Yahweh? He tells the end from the beginning, right? What's Jesus say here to him? I'm telling you that I'm gonna be betrayed. So that when it happens, you'll realize that I am. Egoemi. I'm God. And of course, Judas betrays him. Jesus then answered, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. It says that Satan entered into Judas. Number 22, Zechariah eleven twelve. 12, he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. I'm gonna go quicker, okay? Because I'm running out of time. 23, don't worry, I'm not gonna try to get over 300. Okay, just a few more here. 23, Isaiah 53 says he would be arrested, right? And there'd be unjust law, uh, judgment against him. Uh, fulfilled. 24, Psalm twenty-two, eighteen 18 says the, execution would the executioners would cast lots for his clothing and they would divide his garments. Did that happen? Yes. Number 25, Isaiah 53, 14 says he would be beaten. He was. Number 26, Isaiah 53, 12 says he'd be crucified with thieves or by transgressors. He'd be numbered with the transgressors and so he was. Number 27, Isaiah 53 and also Psalm chapter 22, verse 16 says his hands and his feet would be pierced and so they were number 28 Isaiah 53 6 says he would die as the Passover lamb silent before his shearers it says also in that chapter and so he was even died on Passover day 29 Psalm 69 21 says they would give him gall and vinegar to drink and so they did 
Number 30, Psalm 34:20 says, the Passover lamb would not have a bone broken in reference to Christ's crucifixion in the typology of the Passover lambs in the book of Exodus. God said, don't break the bones. Why? Because the bones were pictured the Messiah who they would typically break their bones to speed up their crucifixion, especially if the Sabbath was coming, which it was that night. When they came to him, he was already dead because he had suffered so much. Wow. Number 31, Isaiah chapter 53, verses five and six says that, guess what? Uh, he died for our sins. It says in Isaiah 53, five, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chasing of our well-being fell on him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Amen? Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. Number 32, just three more, three or four more. Zechariah 12.10 says those Jews who put him to death would look upon him who they'd pierced. Now, this is really interesting because when you read the Gospel of John, when they, he's up there pierced on the cross, it says that this fulfilled the prophecy. They'd see the one they'd pierced. But John, who also wrote the book of Revelation, shows us there's a dual fulfillment that they'll also see him when they pierce the future. In Revelation 1-7, says, Behold, he comes with the clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kings of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. Many prophecies have a dual fulfillment. Amen. amen. John 18 and Revelation 1-7. Number 33, Isaiah 53-9 says, He would be buried in a rich man's tomb. After he was dead, he borrowed Joseph of Arimathea's tomb for three days right? Three days and three nights, so to speak. Number 34, Psalm 1610, his body would not see corruption, but would rise from the dead. And so he did. Amen. Many other prophecies talk about his resurrection. We've gone through, I went through several of them, a uh, resurrection service ago in the Old Testament, looking at wonderful, typological, just beautiful prophecies. Number 35, the last one I'll specifically go through with you. The timing would be perfect. The timing would be perfect for his coming. Because in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 through 27, it says that there would be 69 sevens, sabbatical years, Shabuah, uh, Shabuah or Shabuim, uh, plural for the, the Shabuah, the, the, the seven year period, okay? Like we use the word decade for like 10 years. Shabuah could sometimes refer to, would refer to seven days or seven years. It's used of Jacob working for a Shabuah, right? For who? His wives, right? One seven-year period, they need another seven-year period. Well, guess what? There'd be 69 of these sevens. Now, sabbatical years, or uh, the, the Jews would use the, the lunar calendar, so it'd be 360-day years. So you come up with 483 years. 69 sevens. It says, from the decree, it says this in Daniel 9, you can read it, 24 through 27. We've done a whole, I've done a whole study on this more than, more than once in the past. We don't have time to get into it long, but I can just say this. After 69 sevens, the Messiah would be cut off from a certain point. Daniel tells us when. From the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. Well, you go to the book of Nehemiah, and there is Nehemiah the cupbearer for King Artaxerxes, after the Jews had been set free from Babylon, right? And by Cyrus, 
And now there's King Artaxerxes, and he's serving him as his cupbearer. And he looks very peaked and sickly. And if you're king, you don't want your cupbearer to be sickly because he's the one that tastes your food. And that means you might be poisoned. Is everything okay, Nehemiah? He says, my country's in shambles, my city, Jerusalem. And Nehemiah is told by King Artaxerxes, who makes a decree to rebuild Jerusalem. Historians debate whether it happened in 444 or 445 B.C. But you count 483 years from that period of time, it brings you to about 3233 A.D., right when Christ was crucified. And it says in Daniel 9, from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, there'll be 483 years, and then Messiah will be cut off. And then it says the temple would be destroyed after that. We already talked about that one, right? Perfect timing. You guys, when we celebrate Christmas, we're, we're celebrating not something that just seems nice and beautiful. It's a reality. Jesus came, amen? He loves us. He died to save us. And by the way, perfect timing. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, it says that God sent his son in the fullness of times. Perfect timing. How so? Listen to this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that, he might receive, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Amen? Amen? Praise the Lord. That's amazing. Praise the Lord for adoption too. You know, I was just... Uh, talked to someone recently. He's talked about maybe in the future adopting a child. And I was talking to a sister a couple weeks ago about saying the same thing. I thought, what a beautiful thing it is to adopt children that don't have any parents. Amen. Pray about that. See if that's God's heart for you. The Lord adopted us into his family in the fullness of times, though it says Christ came. Think about that. What does that mean? Well, we could say uh, he had to come at that time. Otherwise, if he didn't come, well, guess what? If he came after the temple, it would be destroyed. It wouldn't be Jesus. He had to come before the temple was destroyed. Amen. He had to come in time in the 697s, amen? But also, if he came a century earlier, it went to work to get the gospel out. Well, it wouldn't have been the time frame of Daniel and other prophecies, but think of why the fullness of times was right historically on the, for, for, for other reasons. It was the right time commercially. It was the right time commercially. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, it was the right time commercially. Why? Because the Romans had built all these roads across the Roman Empire, uh, uniting all these countries with these roads. A hundred years earlier, they couldn't have traveled from country to country, from region to region to share the gospel because all these roads weren't built. Isn't that amazing? Think about that. So it was the right time commercially, but also it was the right time, it was the right time politically because the Romans had declared Pax Romana, Roman, the Roman peace. And they were ruling the known world. And they had common law. And the roads were far safer. It was a lot more, was a lot more easy not to get killed by bandits on the roads as it had been a lot harsher years earlier when they weren't under Pax Romana. So it was the right time commercially, but it was also the right time politically. And number three, it was the right time religiously. It was the right time religiously. Not only was there a high anticipation of the coming of the Messiah, but the Old Testament canon of Scripture had already been finished now, right? And there was 400 years of silence where God didn't speak, just as there was 400 of silence, right, after Abraham died before God spoke to Moses. Now there's 400 years of silence after Malachi, the closing of the canon of Scripture, and they're waiting for the Messiah. But also, Jerusalem, instead of everybody going to the temple, now they're going to synagogues 
which would become a pattern for what? For Christian worship and churches sprouting all over the place because salvation was of the Jews first, amen? And that's, that kind of picture would spread out through the known world. And number four, it was the right time culturally because guess what the world was all doing at this point? A lot of the known world, that is, they're all speaking Koine Greek. Different than the Greek that's spoken today in Greece, quite a bit different. It was just classical, or even classical Greek, or modern Greek. It was Koine Greek, which is the New Testament's written in Koine Greek. But the people spoke in Koine Greek all over the world because the Greeks ruled the world before the Romans took over, who built the roads. So you could go and you could write the epistles in Greek, amen? And you could send them to all these different regions and they knew Greek because a common language had spread. It was in the fullness of time that the Messiah had come, amen? Isn't that cool? I think all those things are super, super cool, amen? So, and by the way, I'll say this. I want to get into a lot more prophecies. I got three minutes left, so I can't, but I'm going to say this much. You know why when people say there's over 300 prophecies of Jesus' first coming, the number's way off? Because I believe there's easily over 300 prophecies of Jesus just in the first two, three books of the Bible. How do I know that? Because I've taught verse by verse through Genesis and much of Exodus. And in Genesis, you have Adam, who's a picture of Christ, amen? From how, you know, the woman coming from his side and all these other pictures, reigning over the earth, having a bride, all these things. Or even the days of creation, even before Adam's created the first day, let there be light, tohu wabohu, God transforms. Paul shows us that's a picture of the new birth in Christ. And each day is a picture of something God does in our salvation. And you get to Adam, there's all kinds of prophecies about Jesus there, amen. And then you get to uh, chapter three, you know, Satan will bruise his heel, but he'll crush his head. You have prophecies right there, verbal prophecy right there of, of Christ coming. You have Noah, right? He's a picture of Christ. You have the ark, right? Only one way into the ark, another picture of Christ, and a picture of the resurrection going under the water, coming back up. Peter says that's a picture, amen? You go to Abraham, and Abraham bringing up Isaac, and all kinds of prophecies with Isaac having a supernatural birth, carrying the wood on his back, being called the only begotten son, being laid down, coming back is a picture of the resurrection. Hebrews in the New Testament says that's a picture of Jesus, his resurrection, you know? And there's many more with Isaac, and then Jacob, we just talked about all kinds of prophecies. He's a picture, and people don't even think of him as being a, a type, amen? But we we looked at that last Sunday. And then Joseph. I mean, you can find 30, 40, 50, maybe, maybe 70 prophecies just of Joseph's life being rejected by his brothers, thrown in a pit, sent, uh, sold by Judah, who's a picture of Judas, same name, into slavery, right? Or to Gentiles, given to the Gentiles, put in a pit, giving bread to the world, his brothers bowing down to him. Joseph is this amazing picture. We're just, be, we're just scratching the surface of Genesis, you guys. Amen? Then you get to Exodus. Can we talk about Moses? Another picture of Jesus? Or the rock that he hits is a picture of Jesus? Or the Ark of the Covenant is a picture of Jesus? Or the manna coming down from heaven is a picture of Jesus, the bread of life? Amen. I mean, on and on and on, guys. Come on. So when you start to consider typology, you get into the hundreds pretty quick in the Bible. So I believe personally, personally, that there's perhaps thousands of prophecies of Jesus if we fully understood everything that the Lord is saying through typology. But a few, a few, over a few hundred, that sounds good. I just love it because a lot of liberals are like, well, that's probably an exaggeration. I'm like, nah, actually, that's super conservative. It's way more than 300 prophecies about Jesus. <laughs> you know, what does all this mean? Number one, it means that God's word is God's word. Amen? 
Number two, it means that Jesus is Lord and Savior. Amen. Number three, it means that God is control of history. Praise God for that. Amen. Number four, it means that we can trust him to fulfill the prophecies of his second coming since he fulfilled the prophecies of his first coming. Amen. In the fullness of time, he came. Amen. Well, I think it's important. Uh, it means that uh, we ought to pay attention to the prophecies that are taking place right now because they missed the signs. Jesus said, you can discern the weather when the sky's red. You know what the weather's gonna be like, but you have not read the signs at times. We have to make sure it means that we're reading the signs of his second coming. Amen. And number six, it means you need to make sure you are saved. Amen. And number seven means we need to be like the Magi and bow down and worship Jesus. Amen. Amen. Can you do that this holiday season? Can you make it one of your goals is to worship Jesus every day? Worship means to serve him, to put him first, amen? I just want to encourage you guys. I know it's kind of a heavy study we had today, but hopefully you're filled up, amen? Hopefully you're encouraged. We can know that the Bible, God's word, has a divine author and he is God, amen? And we should bow down and worship Jesus every day. Well, the Magi saw a little baby Jesus. We have more than little baby Jesus. Amen. The Bible says he walks in the midst of us. The Bible says we have the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit live in us. Amen. Jesus walks among the churches, it says. He's in our presence. Where two or three are gathered in his name, there he is in the midst of them, it says. Amen. Amen. Worship Jesus. Worship Jesus. Bow down and give your best for him. Amen. They traveled for miles and miles and miles. By the way, I have to sew up that last little loose end. Why, where in the world did the Magi get this idea that there would be this king that was born? Because they saw there was a prophet among them in Babylon. And they couldn't answer until what Nebuchadnezzar's dream even was. And Daniel stood out radically. And they even tried to stop him. These are their descendants, I believe. And they... And Daniel had the scriptures, remember? He's reciting Jeremiah to God in his prayer when he's in Babylon. He would have Genesis too. Some of those magi would be keen as to what these scriptures talk about. They talk about this star. They talk about, I think they'd be really into Daniel chapter nine. Oh, the Messiah must be coming anytime. That's 69 Shabuim. There's a strange star in the sky. It's headed toward where Daniel was from. We don't know exactly how it went down, but it was probably something like that. I don't know. They followed it and they found the baby. We have far more than it. Praise God. Jesus was God incarnate right there. Amen. But since that time, he's paid for our sins. Since that time, we have much more clarity on who he is. And we should bow down all the more because we know now that he died for our sins. He rose again and he's coming back again. Amen. Let's all put Jesus first in our lives. Amen. Let's dedicate this new year to worshiping Jesus bowing down before him. And even as they gave him frankincense and gold and myrrh, let's give Jesus not our leftovers. Let's give him our best. Amen? We agree? Let's please stand. Praise God. For a, now I'm three minutes over, so I apologize, but guess what? I got through 20 pages. I didn't even want to tell you it was 35 prophecies going to go through. Because they'd be like, 17, 24. But praise God. Hopefully you're like, praise the Lord. Amen? God is good. Give me three reasons we should praise him. Three different people. Just say quickly, what doesn't, you know, anything, it's on your mind. 
Jim, why should we praise him? There's a bunch of Jims here. Jim Sanford. Because he's true and he speaks the truth. Everything he says comes to pass. Amen, Jim. Oh, Jim Murphy, another Jim. He made promises to Israel. And he will keep them. He's kept the promises he's already made to Israel. So you know he's promises made to you, Jim. He's going to keep. Amen. Angie, I saw your hand up. It's his breath in our lungs. He created the air that we breathe. Amen. So we should use it to give him thanks and praise. Those are three beautiful things. Man, we could have a whole other service just doing this. Let's use the breath in our lungs, not to say, oh, Jesus, you're kind of cool. We love you. But to praise him. Let's give him thanks and praise offering with hands and, and tongues. We love you, Lord. Praise your holy name. Praise your name, Lord. Give him praise. We thank you for the breath that's in our lungs, Lord God. Hallelujah. We praise you that you are the ultimate and only true 100% promise keeper. Hallelujah. We love you. In Jesus' name. Praise the Lord, you guys. We're going to be here Friday. It'll be a message about half this length or so. Uh, uh, so we mellow our message Friday night and uh, some song, Christmas songs of worship. Because, hey, look at it. Hey, you come to church on Sunday. Well, it's not happening Sunday because that day you're going to wake up and spend with your family on Christmas. So just show up Friday and have a beautiful time. Uh, I think the service, instead of being two hours, we'll probably just do an hour and a half and uh, just have a beautiful night together. But I hope you're encouraged. I've been trying to fill you up with Jesus' words, the last couple messages on his birth and the fact that he came because I don't have a lot to give other than God's word, which is everything. So I want to pour that into you guys and love you guys. Give somebody, give at least two different people a big hug. Love you guys. God bless you.